Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, we have the second part of our art series, The Callback, from intern Sean Galanka and myself. In this installment, we look at the pandemic's effect on performing arts venues and talk with leaders at the Smith Center for the Performing Arts in Las Vegas and the Pioneer Center for the Performing Arts in Reno. After that, I talk with former governor and current UNR President Brian Sandoval after six months on the job. At the end of the show, reporter Riley Snyder and assistant editor Michelle Rendells tell me about all the craziness going on in Carson City this week as the legislature wraps up on deadline week. Symphony musicians, ballet dancers, and stage actors rely on large theaters to share their craft. But many of those have been shut down since the pandemic hit over a year ago to curb the spread of COVID-19. We talked with two of Nevada's larger theaters, the Smith Center for the Performing Arts and the Pioneer Center for the Performing Arts, to explore how the closure has affected them and why looser restrictions from the government sometimes aren't enough for them to reopen. I'll let Joey take it from here to explain more. Once on this Island is a Tony award-winning Broadway show that was playing at the Smith Center for Performing Arts in March of 2020. After a few performances, the show's manager approached the venue's president and CEO, Myron Martin, to say the cast was getting nervous. They had seen the reports about COVID-19 spreading, and Nevada had seen its first confirmed case of COVID-19 days earlier. So we actually canceled the last performances uh, of that week. And little did we know when we canceled those shows that that would end up leading to furloughs in July. Uh, and those furloughs led to layoffs December 31st. We've not sold any tickets. We've not done any shows. A few days later, on March 17th, Governor Steve Sisolak ordered all non-essential businesses to close. Over the past year, the Smith Center has lost $30 million in revenue, laid off more than 160 employees, and is working on a skeleton crew while they await the day they can reopen. Meanwhile, in Reno, the Pioneer Center for Performing Arts faces similar challenges. We were, of course, one of the first things to shut down. As the adage goes, we'll be one of the last things to open. That was Denise Sewell, the executive director of the Pioneer Center, which seats 1,500 people located in downtown Reno. Our whole mission at the Pioneer Center is to bring large numbers of people together in an enclosed space for a shared experience. It's the whole purpose of a performing arts center. And of course, it's the thing you can't do in the pandemic. Typically, the event calendar for the Pioneer Center is booked pretty solid September through June. And so when we shut down a year ago, March, we had many, many performances left on the calendar. So the the pandemic effectively halted our operations completely. Larger theater venues like the Smith Center and the Pioneer Center bring in shows from all over the world that draw large audiences of sometimes more than 2,000 people at a time. It's key to draw crowds because often the shows and venues cannot make ends meet with smaller groups. There are two parts to it. One of it is what I was just saying, the experience. A theater experience when 90% of the audience is vacant is not the same. It's really awkward. And, and when the audience is 90% or greater full, that's the magic. That's the secret sauce to live theater. The, the part two is, and that's financially, can you afford to do it? And the truth is, no, we, we can't. 
most Broadway shows, we have to have somewhere around 90% occupancy to break even. And so the idea of saying, you know, when the governor says we can reopen at 50%, that we should jump at it, the answer is we can't afford to on, on many fronts. There's something different about being together with people in an audience for that temporary moment that you share together. And I think that's the sort of thing that that our local arts groups are really trying to figure out. How can we replicate that same feeling of, of special without bringing audiences together? One way that both the Smith Center and the Pioneer Center have been able to support artists during this time is by hosting virtual performances and presentations. In one instance, the Smith Center had a wildlife photographer from National Geographic give a virtual talk about his process and present some of his work. So, so National Geographic has done two or three of, of those kinds of programs virtually. The Nat Geo ones we did sell tickets to. There have been a, a couple. We did a Dave Cause. He did a holiday special and they charged for that. There have been a few others where, where people just wanted an audience and, and we were able to kind of hook it up so that our people could join in and be entertained like we are right now on their computers. The Pioneer Center has also been able to do some limited virtual events with the Reno Philharmonic and Sierra Nevada Ballet. But just because theaters have been able to have some virtual performances does not mean that they are able to make enough, if any, money to stay open. Here's Martin again. Our revenue sources are two things. They are ticket sales, which account for about 75% of our revenues, and then contributed income, donors, right? So people who love what we do and contribute, people who give to our annual fund or become members of the Smith Center. Fortunately, that portion of our business, the, the donor side, we've done okay. We've got some very generous people in our great state but the ticket sales have have gone to absolutely zero. Pre-pandemic, the Pioneer Center drew virtually all of its revenue from ticket sales, but they've seen an outpouring of community support since the shutdown. We had not previously done appeals to the community for donations. It wasn't really Mm -hmm. part of our business model as a nonprofit. We really relied on on ticket sales, on being able to bring people to events to fund the other activities that we do. And through the complete loss of earned revenue, we turned to these alternative models of nonprofits to try to to fundraise, sent out some appeals to the community, and they have just been incredible. We've been overwhelmed with, with the support from people. On top of donations, one of the major reasons venues are even able to stay open is through things like the Paycheck Protection Program and a grant program through the Small Business Administration called the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant. The grant was part of the Economic Aid to Hard-Hit Small Businesses, Nonprofits, and Venues Act, which was approved by Congress in late December of 2020. The $325 billion act included more than $16 billion in grant funding to closed venues. Beneficiaries could get up to 45% of their gross earned revenue back from the grant, which maxed out at $10 million per venue. I have to say a great debt of thanks to the Nevada congressional delegation for being so supportive of what started off as the Save Our Stages Act. It, It ended up being called the Shuttered Venue Operators Grants, which is now being administered by the Small Business Administration. The, the, the shelter 
at venue grants are something that are actually going to help us get some of the work done during the dark period and bring people back to work. I don't know how we would do it without this government support. It's a big, big, big deal to the Smith Center. And it's a big deal to venues around the country, some of which are like us, major nonprofit institutions. Some are commercial uh, enterprises. They've been sidelined. They've had no income. And you look at places like that from coast to coast, and a lot of them aren't going to make it. A lot of them won't make it to reopening. Thanks to the Shuttered Venue Operators Grants, a lot of them will. As venues await to reopen, they've had a lot of downtime. So what have they been up to? Here's Sewell with the Pioneer Center in Reno. Our staff has been focusing on the building because we actually have, we never usually have this much what we call dark time, touch up the paint on the baseboards and to carpets and, and things that you wouldn't think about because when we're so busy, we don't usually have the opportunity to really kind of take it all apart and put it all back together. But that mm-hmm. is literally exactly <laughs> what our team has been doing, taking it all apart, putting it all back together you know, dusting every nook. It's 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 down to that level of, you know, white glove cleaning and, and the theater <laughs> because we have the opportunity to do it. As businesses reopen and more people get vaccinated, venues still face a long road before it's really viable for them to operate the way that they used to. The whole industry is kind of holding its breath. And, and Broadway's a really interesting example. They know that their business model is based in being able to sell a full house. The number of people who left that industry, the actors, the costumers, the stagehands, the directors, everyone who could not have a sustainable income for well over a year had to leave that industry to go pursue other work to be able to survive. And I think in theaters, it's the same. Most venues like ours lost a tremendous portion of their staff. So before they can come back in full, they have to find new people, refill those positions, ramp back up. So it isn't It isn't just you flip a light switch and we're back. I think smaller local events will start to be willing to attempt less than a full house. So we'll probably open in smaller capacity, hopefully late spring, early summer, through the fall. We may be hosting some really small distanced type of events. Venues also need to be confident that they can stay open, according to Martin. The national tours can't wait to get back on the road. But I mean, think of those producers. If, if you are doing a national tour of some show, you have to be pretty confident that it, at no stop along the way is there going to be a governor that says, oh, never mind, we're going back to 50%, because that means there's no show. You can't have six weeks of a show and then take two weeks off and then stop and start. So they can't wait. But they, like the rest of us, are going to play it safe. And audiences have been ravenous for live performances. We do a lot of surveys. We stay in touch with our patrons, with our ticket buyers in lots of different ways. And and what we've kind of tracked over time is that people tell us that the Smith Center is the thing they miss most, that they, they really miss not only kind of getting out with their friends and seeing their neighbors, but having those shared experiences that, that a place like the Smith Center can provide. They've also told us along the way that as much as they miss it, They don't think they will return until it's safe to do so. 
I think once that time comes, there will be such hunger for those experiences that I really do believe organizations here locally who offer those opportunities, the Philharmonic, the Ballet, Art Town, these other groups, people will be signing up, even for things they've never yeah. heard of, experiences they've never tried. Because once you're deprived of something for long enough, you realize how much it meant to you. And I think even for people who say, oh, I never went to the Phil and I always meant to go see a concert, now will be the time that you make good on those things you said you would do. Those experiences, gosh, I wish I'd gone to more, you know, local community theater. Well, you will finally have a chance. <laughs> and I really hope that this proves to be true, but I do believe people will be so anxious to come back together and to have these experiences. Vaccines are now available to the public over the age of 16, and more than 30% of the state is already at least partially vaccinated. On May 1st, COVID restrictions will become the jurisdictions of the counties, meaning some areas of the state may move more quickly than others to lift restrictions. This doesn't mean that all theaters and performing arts venues will be back on May 1st, but many are starting to book performances for the fall. To keep up on all the changes, follow the Nevada Independent. This story was produced by Joey Lovato and myself, Sean Galanka, and was edited by Joey Lovato with editing help from Michelle Rindels. Come back next week for the third and final installment of our series, The Callback. When Regents selected Brian Sandoval as UNR's 17th president last summer, it had been considered as something of a foregone conclusion. A former assemblyman, gaming commissioner, attorney general, federal judge, and most famously governor during the depths of the Great Recession, Sandoval is something of a rarity in higher education leadership, boasting an unparalleled political resume in place of a scant academic CV. But he also entered the job at a time of ongoing uncertainty for the university. The fall semester had just begun, and it was unclear what toll the COVID-19 pandemic would take on student body returning to campus for the first time since the sudden shutdown in March. All the while, falling enrollments, cratering revenues, and a rolling series of state-level cuts hobbled higher education budgets and triggered system-wide hiring freezes. Even now, as pandemic conditions have dramatically improved, enrollments are expected to remain down through the fall, and higher education institutions have prepared for budget cuts of an additional 12%. Amid these issues and more, reporter Jacob Solis sat down with Sandoval to break down his first six months as president, the university's ongoing response to the pandemic, and where UNR goes from here. First, I had asked Sandoval about COVID and the university's decision to hold an in-person graduation next month outdoors at UNR's Mackey Stadium. It comes after months of steady improvements in coronavirus metrics as vaccination efforts have rapidly expanded. But it also comes as some parts of the country have seen defined COVID spikes, spurring new fears that there could be waves of infections in as yet unvaccinated communities. I asked Sandoval where the university drew the line in balancing public health conditions and the massive demand among students and parents for an in-person ceremony, and how close we have to be to the event before UNR has to make a decision on moving forward with in-person. We're planning on going forward. We are planning for an in-person graduation in Mackey Stadium. We submitted our plan long ago to the Department of Business and Industry with the state. That plan was approved. It's going to provide, obviously, for six feet of social distancing. All attendees will have to answer a questionnaire. They'll, each graduate will be allowed four guests. 
we'll have eight different ceremonies over the course of four days. And so we've worked very closely with Washoe County, with the state of Nevada. With additional plans for this fall semester to be largely in person, I also asked Sandoval what role UNR would play in promoting or enforcing public health guidelines on campus. And more broadly than that, what he thought the role of the university was in managing the spread of the virus. I think your your question speaks to how dynamic and fluid the situation really is. The state and has come a long way. The university has come a long way. With regard to the, the governor's plan or playbook, I think is, is how it's referred to. We followed that very closely. And those individuals that were previously eligible for the vaccine, um, we estimated that our front-facing faculty and and staff and graduate students, approximately 90% of those elected to get the vaccine. And if if we're able to receive more vaccine from the county, we wanna make it as convenient as possible for all students and faculty and staff because they're now eligible. When I arrived in in October, unfortunately, there were large numbers of uh, positive tests on our campus, which resulted in the announcement of the closure of the Wigan Fitness Center and the going to an online class modality after Thanksgiving or after the, the, the fall break, and then the announcement of no spring break and that we would have what they call reading days instead. And so those were all very strategic in terms of ensuring that there wasn't a larger spread last fall least the statistic that was brought to my attention was that one out of eight cases in Washoe County were emanating from the UNR campus, um, whether it be on or off, on or off campus. The, the bottom line is, is we, we, I have responsibility to protect health, safety, and welfare of all students, faculty, and staff. And that was the, the mindset going into making those decisions that, that I just talked about. The the campus has been doing much better. As I mentioned, I'm really proud of of the students and the faculty and staff, and and our numbers have come down dramatically, probably five to 10 positive cases a week, which is five to 10 too many, granted, but compared to what we were doing before. This most recent week, there was a a spike in terms of going up to 30 30 students, and we're watching that uh, very closely. But at the same time, we're aggressively informing and communicating with with everybody on campus about the availability of the vaccine and where they can go get appointments. I got my vaccine last Monday at the Livestock Event Center and just really, again, really encouraging students to do that. So as we move into the fall, our plan is to be in person. And, you know, we, again, we work very closely with the the state and the county. I believe it's uh, May 1st when the state turns things over to the county with regard to developing policy and and procedures, and we will continue to work with the county in that regard. But it's very important for us. We've heard very loudly from from the students that they want that in-person experience. They want to be in in the classes. And similarly with the faculty, they they enjoy that that in-person experience as well. And but at, at the same time, we are absolutely mindful of what the requirements are going to be through the county and state. As a consequence of the pandemic, higher education budgets statewide took drastic hits through all of last year, and administrators are preparing again for even more cuts by the time budgets are closed as part of this year's legislative session. I asked Sandoval what he thought the long-term ramifications of those cuts could be. Well, it's it's going to be a challenge. I mean, they, obviously, last year after the special session, so we 
we absorbed a $39 million or 20% cut, some of which was was mitigated through federal funds. Moving forward, we have submitted a budget that meets the governor's recommended recommendation of 12, 12%. And again, that, that means that we're freezing positions, keeping positions open, that you know there are a lot of faculty vacancies that we would have been able to otherwise fill. There are student advisement positions that we would have been able to otherwise fill. My understanding is that the budget likely will close with the, the 12% budget cuts. There's going to be likely a special session again is what we're hearing that that will we're in the the governor and the legislature will make a determination as how to deploy the federal funds that that are going to be coming in we obviously are hopeful that we'll, we'll that some of those funds will be di- directed to higher education so that uh, we can mitigate some of those 12 percent cuts that that are included in the budget and so on the other you know the other effect in response to your question is that enrollment is down as a result of the pandemic and rightfully so there are a lot of students and parents that uh, want that in-person experience that we just discussed they you know if they're going to be paying tuition they want their students on campus and, and going to class and i agree with them whole, wholeheartedly and so fall to fall our enrollment has been down and we are aggressively doing everything we can to to promote the university and and increase the the enrollment for for this upcoming fall. I've personally participated in at least three or four recruitment events, but that drop in enrollment also means a drop in funding is associated with that. So we're watching and waiting to see you know what happens with the, the closure of of our budget. Part of the concern over budget cuts is a broader worry over the future of UNR and UNLV as top tier research universities. Both schools achieved Carnegie R1 status in 2018, placing each among the top research universities in the entire country. But budget cuts and hiring freezes have opened up a raft of faculty vacancies, and I asked Sandoval how those cuts might impact efforts to maintain Carnegie R1 status. Our research numbers are excellent. I mean, we've we've increased research dramatically, and that is one of the, the measurements associated with the, the Carnegie R1. You know, the, the concern is this, as I told you, we have a lot of faculty vacancies and we very much would like to continue to, to be able to recruit and bring in the best faculty we possibly can. I think it's, we were in 30 to 40 faculty recruitments and we're gonna be able to fill three or four of those faculty positions. So, you know, that's gonna leave a mark. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. and. Even if uh, there is a positive outcome in terms of some in a special session, it'll be too late to hire for the fall. But having said all that, you know we we understand and appreciate that there's shared sacrifice that the the state is going through a very difficult time. I know this more than anybody from from prior experience, and we have to do our our fair share. But you know we're confident that we'll maintain our our one Carnegie position, but it definitely makes it more challenging as we move forward. part of a longer interview Jacob did with President Sandoval. If you want to read the full interview, you can find the written version from Tuesday, April 6th on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. All right, and we are here with Riley Snyder and Michelle Rendells, who are down in Carson City for a, a Carson City debrief. Guys, it's been a, a pretty crazy week. It's Thursday evening. Tomorrow is deadline for bills. What's going on? 
Well, for starters, Riley just finished covering a bill that might have significant implications for Nevada's prominence in the next presidential election. So Riley, you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. So this is a bill you might remember from February. It's from Speaker Jason Frierson, and it would finally, for once and all, kill Nevada's presidential caucus, and it would replace it with the primary election, and the idea is to leapfrog all other early states meaning Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and have Nevada be first in the nation. In theory, this sounds like a good idea. In reality, it's a very difficult thing to accomplish. The presidential nominating calendar is set by national political parties. It's a decision that Democrats and Republicans nationally have to make kind of jointly. So there are a lot of hurdles beyond just this bill. During the hearing, there was some testimony in opposition from Republicans. I guess the Nevada Republican Party and the other Republican parties in the three early states have kind of decided to band together to stop any changes to the nominating contest. Democrats, on the other hand, want to move Iowa and New Hampshire off the early nominating list just because they those states' electorates don't really reflect the nation at large. So a lot of really interesting issues there, but this is sort of the first step uh, towards maybe moving Nevada up that process or at the very least killing the caucus. So is there a is there a suggestion then that Nevada maybe represents the nation at large a little bit better? Yeah, I actually tweeted this a couple of minutes ago, but 538 did an analysis of every state's uh, Democratic electorate and their racial makeup compared to the nation at large's Democratic makeup. Nevada is fifth on that list, and the other three nominating states are all, I think 34th was the next closest one, but otherwise it's all less representative of how the nation looks as a whole. So other than the election bills, there was um, there was a lot going on with uh, the K-12 funding formula. You guys want to talk about that? Yeah. So on Wednesday, there was sort of a big meeting in the, in the joint budget committee. And essentially, lawmakers said that they no longer wanted to go with Governor Sisolak's uh, two-year phased-in implementation of the new funding formula. This is a, a process that was kind of put in place in 2019. It's an update to the state's uh, funding formula that's remained the same over the last 50 years. So a very strong desire to update that and to, to put more weights towards ELL students, other students with needs. The governor in his January State of the State address had wanted a two-year delay in implementing that, but lawmakers this week have essentially decided that that would probably lead to more issues than answers. So they're going to go ahead and try and implement that for the next upcoming budget cycle which starts in the end of June. So that's a pretty big shift. It's gonna require a lot of decisions and a lot of like changes to ensure that rural school districts and other school districts are held harmless and don't lose a bunch of funding overnight. But that was a pretty substantial shift in direction in terms of where the legislature wants to go on that issue. All right. And Michelle, you were uh, looking into some immigration bills that, that came up at the legislature today, huh? So basically, there has been a long time effort to try to reduce the level of collaboration between local police agencies and immigration customs enforcement. This has been, you know, a quest for years because folks say that if the police have any role in immigration enforcement, it makes people afraid to report everyday crimes that they would to the regular police. So that could be domestic violence or someone robbing them or or things like that. They're worried if they call the police, the police are in cahoots with ICE and are going to immediately get them into deportation proceedings. So the legislators took a step towards kind of divorcing those two agencies. They have a bill that passed out of committee this week 
that prohibits local police from really sharing any information with ICE or devoting any resources or money to accomplishing priorities of federal immigration enforcement, unless there's a federal warrant out for someone, or if there's some other probable cause, if there's a really good reason for doing so. This is for multiple reasons, as I mentioned, the the fear factor, but also they say we don't want to be using scarce resources doing ICE's work for it. Of course, from the other side, there was a lot of opposition related to fear that we would be called a sanctuary state and that that was going to affect tourism and and raise the crime levels and things like that. Now, it's important to note that sanctuary state is sort of an ambiguous term. There's not a legal definition for that. So it's kind of just a label that people might want to put on a state that is trying to distance itself from working with the federal government. All right. There's a lot of things going on at the legislature that we're we're probably not going to be able to talk about just because there's so many bills. But one last thing that I wanted to touch on was the summary evictions bill that's been up. Can you guys kind of go into detail about that a little bit? Yeah. So Nevada has a process called summary eviction, where if someone falls behind on rent, the landlord can give them a notice, a seven day notice. And if that tenant doesn't file an answer in the court, the landlord can just get an order from the judge to have that person evicted. And so it can happen in like eight days from when that person falls behind on rent that they could be locked out of their home. This is a process that is unique to Nevada and advocates have long chafed against it because it's so fast. And because most tenants, you know, if they've fallen behind on rent, they're probably just in some other crisis and are not going to be able to wisely navigate the legal system and try to defend themselves. So almost, I mean, it was like 10% of the time tenants actually resist these lockouts that are are brought about through summary eviction. So uh, Selena Torres, a Democratic Assemblywoman, attempted to completely abolish the summary eviction process to create a process that would have a little more court involvement, uh, a little more rights for the tenant. Now we saw a, what is called a gut and replace of the bill. That's, you know, something that you see when the sponsor of a bill knows the bill's not going to survive in its current form, completely deletes pretty much all the languages and replaces it with something else. So the language abolishing the summary eviction process was replaced with a study on the uh, summary eviction process that could potentially happen in the interim. Torres said that we're in the middle of a crisis. We're in the middle of trying to get rental assistance out and potentially when the moratorium on evictions lifts at the end of June, you know, we're going to have, have a lot going on and it's probably not the best time to be shifting the ground underneath the tenants and the landlords that are experiencing these kind of seismic changes as a result of the pandemic. So if it survives through the session, we'll have a, a summary evictions interim study and potentially in 2023, have some legislation that might do away with that process. Well, like I said, there are a lot more bills going on. Um, We've got an issues tracker coming up on the website and we've got tons of stories coming out of the legislature every day, um, kind of updating you on what's going on, what's passing, what's being voted on. So just make sure to stick around for that. Riley and Michelle, thank you so much for joining me tonight on Michelle's birthday. Michelle is working late on her birthday to get you guys the news uh, that you need. So Michelle, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Joey. Thanks, Joey.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Sean Galanka, Myron Martin, Denise Sewell, Brian Sandoval, Riley Snyder, and Michelle Rendells for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the show with a friend or on social media. It helps the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns, gardening tips, breakfast cereal suggestions, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at joey at theenvyindy.com, and Jacob is at jacob at theenvyindy.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Michael Vignola, Lance Conrad, Storyblocks, Worldwide Public Domain, Craig Austin, Tchaikovsky, and original music by our own Joey Lovato. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. No, I must have accidentally hit. Um, currently, my microphone is somewhere in a bundle of wire be- beneath my <laughs> mouth. So. Good, good, uh, good. Yeah.